This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. From Kansas, Kentucky and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. I'm Kate Kelly. And I'm Jamia Wilson. And this is Ordinary Equality. On June 24, 2022, while every news outlet exploded with the Dobbs case, I was on a plane flying to the French Riviera. I have to admit that after I ugly cried all day, taped our podcast, went through the hell that is JFK, I kicked back and had champagne on Air France, because that's how they do Air France, and thought about what it was going to mean to be able to go meet an old friend, a prominent French feminist who's been active in the movement since the 1970s. Her name is Claudine Montaigne, and in some ways, Claudine was born for this work. My mother read The Second Sex, you know, while she was giving birth to me. So I guess I am a child of The Second Sex. And Simone de Beauvoir burst into love and said, the terrible child of the second sex. <laughs> and this was the greatest compliment in my lifetime. <laughs> Claudine has worked side by side with Simone de Beauvoir and other leaders of the feminist world. She's a total powerhouse, especially in the world of women's liberation and reproductive access. So I thought, I'm here. I'm in France. Roe has fallen. And here is one of the women who pioneered abortion access in France. Who better to ask about securing abortion rights than someone who made it happen? Here's the thing. In the U.S., the way we talk about abortion, at least publicly, often boils down to the same perpetual shouting match. Pro, anti, choice, life. It never really feels like we're having a productive discussion. What I learned from Claudine is we have a lot to learn from the way people in France have changed their conversation about abortion. If we're going to enact real change, we need to shift the narrative around abortion. It's all about messaging. Essentially, this is what Claudine did. By paying attention to the way people spoke about abortion, she helped totally reinvent the way it's perceived and discussed in France. Okay, I'm interested. Talk abortion to me. When I met Claudine, she was already a celebrated feminist lecturer and writer. But when Claudine was growing up, abortion was not a topic of conversation. At all. France is a very old country, as you know, with a very old history. And a history really based on Catholicism, on religious Catholicism. And the one purpose of the Catholic religion at the time the idea was a real, quote-unquote, a real woman 
is a mother who gives birth every year or every two years to a Catholic child. So therefore, it was totally pro-birth, giving birth. Abortion had been a crime in France since at least 1810 under the Napoleonic Code. Under the Vichy regime in the 1940s, the punishment got even stricter. When the Nazis arrived and occupied France, they were against abortion also. And the Marshal Pétain, who was a collaborator with the Nazis, decided that if you had an abortion, you should have death penalty. The last execution for abortion-related crimes in France happened in 1943. Eventually, restrictions loosened a little bit. By the time Claudine was attending university in the late 1960s, abortion only carried a penalty of jail time. Only. In 1970, the abortion rights movement really picked up speed after a worker and student revolt in the May of 1968, which Claudine was also a part of. Those revolutionary groups weren't willing to spotlight feminist causes. But that was just the sort of issue Claudine wanted to dive into. It is important for you American feminists to understand that in 1970, the most taboo, non spoken word in French was avortement, abortion. When I say the most taboo is that I hardly heard the word twice in my lifetime since my 20s, and it was whispering by my mother about someone who had had an illegal abortion. Why? Because abortion was a crime. You could be arrested on the spot, where in reality, there were hundreds of thousands of illegal abortions every year, practiced every year in France, and usually on the kitchen with a knife, and women would get wounded because the poorer the women were, the less they had the opportunity to flee to the UK or to the Netherlands or to Switzerland to have a healthy a health-related uh, abortion. Activists experienced and knew who had grown up reading earlier feminist works wanted to see real legislative protections put in place. Activists like Claudine. We don't want to wait for a quote-unquote, a government which will bring justice and peace. We don't trust politicians anymore. We want to change the world now. Logistically, how do you even begin to campaign around a topic that's been totally hush-hush for your entire life? It's a difficult question, and it's also the question Claudine got literally her first day on the job. She went to a meeting at Simone de Beauvoir's home. And we were about eight women. They were all older than I. I was, you know, like the kid, you know, the teenager there. And I was so happy to sit there, and I was feeling like I'm going to look at the hero of my life. You know, she was my icon. And so I looked at the icon, and then she said, well, Claudine, okay. What do you think we should do for the abortion campaign? Now, it's your time to talk. Claudine and these other women decided the only way to break the silence was to talk about abortion as loudly as possible. So this is to say our first purpose was to create a quote-unquote scandal, a shock, which would oblige French society to talk about it. This is why we had the idea of writing a manifesto. Kate, what do you know of the Manifeste des 343, 
or the manifesto of the 343. I feel like I'm about to get a gold star in class because of you. The manifesto of the 343 was an open letter published in a big French weekly magazine in 1971. The 343 were the 343 women who signed the manifesto. When they signed, they were announcing that they had had an illegal abortion. It should not surprise you by now to hear that Claudine was one of the 343. The 343 women were from all walks of life. They ranged from the likes of Simone de Beauvoir herself, to actress Catherine Deneuve, to Claudine, who at the time was a young emerging feminist leader. The manifesto is pretty short. The English translation reads, One million women in France have abortions every year. Condemned to secrecy, they do so in dangerous conditions. While under medical supervision, this is one of the simplest procedures. Society is silencing these millions of women. I declare that I am one of them. I declare that I have had an abortion. Just as we demand free access to contraception, we demand the freedom to have an abortion. (sighs) I get chills just hearing that manifesto and imagining the bravery of those women and pregnant people who signed that in 1971 when it was so taboo and the procedure was so clandestine that they were really, really taking a big risk. I think there's something powerful in using the language of I declare, breaking this silence in the most violent way possible, not just like letting you know I had an abortion, I'm declaring it. They wanted to totally shake up the conversation. And they did. It was an earthquake all over France. Over 24 to 48 hours, everyone was talking about abortion. The next day, people like the woman who was selling the newspaper at the corner of the street, the lady, the cleaning lady of the building, they all talked to me. They whispered to me. They said, this is great what you did. This is great. So you see, this is to say, it is through events like this that public opinion changed. And now I can almost talk with anyone about abortion. What a shift from silence to front page to actual conversations among women in France. Yeah, but let's not forget, it's not like all of that talk was positive. A lot of it was actually pretty detrimental to these women who signed their names because, remember, they're admitting to committing a crime. It affected what Claudine could do for her career. And this meant diplomat or professor of literature, you know, this meant to be a government member, you know, paid by the French government, being a civil servant. And of course, if you sign and you declare that you've committed a crime, you cannot be accepted to become a civil servant. So my parents were desperate. And I was totally unconscious. But it is through the eyes and the experience of women who were older than I, who signed the manifesto, that I realized what I had signed. Because they lost their jobs. Their families were broken up. They were like parias, you know, they were really parias in society. And beyond that, I imagine the press wasn't kind either. They had a few choice words. We were called the bitches, 
It's a manifesto of the 343 bitches. I always say we are women of courage. We are women of honor. Because in French, you say un homme d'honneur, a man of honor. So I said, we are women of honor. I hate to ask, but did any legislative change come out of this? It did. Four years after the manifesto was published, France adopted the Veil Law. The Veil Law repealed the penalty for voluntarily terminating a pregnancy during the first 10 weeks. That's a start. But 10 weeks is still pretty early on in a pregnancy. That law doesn't cover a lot of people who might need an abortion. Exactly. And the fight's never really over. The Veil Law was a huge success. Abortion in France went from punishable by death to legal in some cases. And it all happened in a couple of decades. But Claudine made it abundantly clear to me that legalization wasn't the end of the abortion conversation. It wasn't then. It isn't now. That's a lesson she learned from her mentors. I would say, Simon, Simon, they're going to change the law. We have won. And she said, no, Claudine, we have not won. There could be an economic, political, or religious crisis, and all our rights could be jeopardized and taken away from us. And she looked at me, and she stared at me, and she said to me, like a grandmother would say to a grandchild, she said to me, Claudine, all your life, you're going to have to be very cautious. Hearing all of this from Claudine and the way the manifesto of the 343 really shifted the abortion conversation brings me back to 2015 here in the U.S. There was sort of a parallel situation. The House was trying to defund Planned Parenthood, and they were having all those hearings about fetal remains and those fake videos and all that controversy. Planned Parenthood has blood on its hands. These same techniques that are being used by Planned Parenthood to manipulate the baby into a position to harvest the baby's organs. And then a group called Shout Your Abortion spoke up. The movement was founded by Amelia Bono and others, and they were like, no, we're talking about our abortions and we're using a hashtag and we're affirmatively embracing that they were joyful, life-giving experiences and 100,000 people in one day used the hashtag shout your abortion. And it really changed the public conversation and opened it up for people to talk about joy and freedom in a new way. And then here we are, seven years later, losing that fundamental right to access abortion on the federal level. And so we can have these really huge culture shifts and they are always accompanied with backlash. It's true. We need to expect them and be proactive instead of defensive. I think that's a really important lesson for us to learn and to be prepared to continue to fight for our lives in these laws, <laughs> um, in these freedoms. And so the prescience and the wisdom of Simone de Beauvoir also reigns true for me with this because it highlights this idea that we can't wash our hands 
of the reality of knowing that when you do big, bold things to transform things, that the people who benefit from these power imbalances and from unhealthy power dynamics are going to push back and they're going to double down on making it harder to win another time. So I'm very interested in what we can take and learn from them. I have seen in the pages of Claudine's books and then through the friendship that we have and sisterhood and solidarity, her embodying in action and loving leadership that advice. So this also brings a question to me about what is our role in making sure we pass this information and education on and have it be an organic part of how we continue to ensure that generations to come will have this access for seven generations and beyond. That gives me hope. And also, I'm always so incredibly frustrated how the other side gets to control the narrative. They're always like one step ahead. It is incredibly frustrating. But... I love an optimistic but. Please say more. We're at the point that we need to rethink our own narrative about abortion in the U.S. before things can get as bad as they did in France. We need to keep people talking about abortion and having honest conversations. And the big question is, what should this new narrative be? After the break, we speak to someone who gives us some real answers. Our listeners know that the attack on abortion and other forms of reproductive care is devastating to so many people in so many ways. Sometimes it's hard to know what you can do to help. Trust me, I get it. But our sponsor, ActBlue, makes it easy to take action. ActBlue's online fundraising platform is seamless and secure, which is why they're trusted by millions of grassroots donors who are driving the change they want to see. At wondermedianetwork.com donate, you can give directly to reproductive justice groups and abortion funds in just a few clicks. So head to wondermedianetwork.com donate to find reproductive justice groups you can support today. That's wondermedianetwork.com donate. Okay, Jamia, I want to try to shift the narrative of this fight for abortion rights a little bit. The reality is here in the U.S., the constitutional right to abortion, which we've had for 50 years, has been revoked. And that really, really sucks, and it's scary. But what if we thought of it as living in a revolutionary moment? I like that. Instead of just getting overwhelmed by dread, it gives us momentum. Exactly. So using all the knowledge we've gained so far in a post-Roe world, we took this question to an expert communicator. If there's anyone who can find the potential for progressive change in the middle of a fascist nosedive, it's our resident messaging expert. My name is Anat Shankar Osorio, and I'm a communications consultant. My background is in applied cognitive linguistics, which means that I look at why certain messages resonate and others don't. I love talking to Anat in moments like these. She's seen every sort of campaign and political tide turning. She's worked on and watched progressive campaigns around the world, and that includes legalizing abortion. In many ways, it really is kind of the best of times and the worst of times, which is often what happens when an issue that has been 
at a very, very, very slow burn. You know, it's it's the parable of the frogs in the boiling water who, uh-oh, didn't realize they were getting boiled because of the temperature. Just to be clear, Anat is saying this about folks outside of activist circles. Abortion activists in the U.S. have very much felt the water boiling. Now everyone else is warming up to it. Anat told us that the Dobbs decision really was seeping into everyone's lives. As part of her research, Anat holds focus groups to see what issues are top of mind. Before Dobbs, the baseline for what people were concerned about was pretty standard. Almost without exception, different demographics, different kinds of people, young, old, all the configurations you can imagine. Every single week, week after week, you know, what's top of mind? It's cost of living, cost of living, cost of living. But then when the Dobbs decision came down, something shifted. Without even a prompting question, there was a new issue top of mind, abortion. We haven't primed them. We haven't like brought it up. They're bringing it up to us and saying to us, like, this is what I'm thinking about. And that's very rare. It's very rare for a piece of information to really impact and bring a lay person who doesn't focus on politics to have that be the first thing on their mind in a group conversation. And really, that's the role of messaging, to bridge that gap between raising social consciousness and accomplishing legislative change, essentially to campaign in our everyday lives. It's great to hear that people are already naturally talking about abortion. I mean, obviously, we can't stop talking about it. But we also want those conversations to make a difference in abortion access. To do that, Anat explained, there needs to be a messaging strategy, a guidebook that helps create a united front. That makes it so much easier for the movement to gain traction. That doesn't mean that every campaign has to have the same narrative. It's all about context, all about the people the campaign is for, the target audience. So, for example, in Argentina, that campaign used a lot of symbolism around the green handkerchief and leveraged the shared history of dictatorships and abortion across South America. In Ireland, Anat pointed out the importance of the three C's, care, compassion, and change, that marked the lead-up to their referendum on abortion. That got me thinking. There are some well-known slogans in the U.S. around abortion. My body, my choice, bans off our bodies. Exactly. We know them, we chant them. Here's the thing. Turns out these slogans might not be doing what we want them to do. There are a few big pitfalls Anat has found. The first one is focusing on freedom from governmental control. This idea of kind of get government out, there I think we're putting ourselves in kind of a challenging position. Down that road is how we got the Hyde Amendment in the first place. The notion that this is an argument about getting government out is the proverbial slippery slope because government out, as reproductive justice leaders have pointed out from the beginning, means that you could have a theoretical right to an abortion, but no way to actually access it. If government won't pay for it, if state-based medical schools won't train OBGYNs on how to do the procedure, if government won't force insurance corporations to actually cover it, et cetera, et cetera. You actually need government playing a role here. Unfortunately, we do need the government for support. So this message misses the mark. The second pitfall of our usual slogans is focusing on choice. The idea of talking about abortion as choice, not particularly effective. And the reason for that is because when we look at how choice is used in standard American English outside of the reproductive context, it is generally to talk about 
consumer behavior. So the idea that it evokes is a decision of little consequence made quickly, taken lightly. Not that big a deal. There isn't a choice if you don't have money. Choice is inadequate. Like, what is the choice when, you know, you desperately wanted to parent, but the economic conditions mean that you absolutely cannot? Like, is that a choice? That's not a choice. That's being forced into a box that you don't want to be inside of. And so it's also, it's just a misnomer. It's not true. It's not what's actually happening in the world. It's not an apt descriptor. It's not as simple as my body, my choice. When that choice doesn't exist. When there is no alternative. Exactly. We've also heard these slogans turned against progressive causes, which leads me to the third pitfall, focusing on privacy. I would be leery of making a privacy argument. Children are not private property. They're just really not. And the construal of children and family as private is how we get to people saying, my child, my choice, I'm not going to vaccinate. My body, my choice, I'm not going to wear a mask and I'm not going to vaccinate. I mean, the fact that the my child, my choice, my body, my choice fits so easily into these antisocial actions of refusal to mask and refusal to vaccinate just tells you that they were never really that great a fit for a progressive argument because they are anti-social claims, by which I mean anti the notion of a society that we all inhabit and sort of create together, which is actually the truth. I think Anat's analysis here is fascinating because for folks who don't study messaging for a living, we've probably just internalized these slogans and messages. We recognize them, we repeat them, without having to think about what's behind these words and their implications. But we're in a new political moment. The fact that Roe has actually fallen means we have the opportunity and the obligation to revamp our fight. This isn't the same debate we've been having for the last 20, 30, 40 years. I'm now going to say a new thing to you. What has happened is that this idea of this, you know, matchup between choice and life is so kind of cemented in the public's mind. And so for people who are apolitical, part of what makes campaigns successful is to present information, to present ideas, to present the story, the narrative in a new light that signals to people, this isn't the exact same debate that you've like tried to turn off in the background for the last however many years. So I will declare here so everyone can hold me accountable that although it feels good to say, take your rosaries off my ovaries, <laughs> I am going to retire it now. Let's say we throw all this jargon and slogans we've known forever out of the window. The new message we need to get across is that we have to band together to make this work, to pass laws that protect abortion, to reframe the conversation about abortion as a societal movement. It's what Claudine was talking about. Abortion as a movement, a campaign, a human right, is actually a societal responsibility. It's the type of change that can only come from a consensus that this is a right people should have access to, whether they individually have an abortion or not. The truth is that life is the world's largest group project. And all of us, you know, rightly hate group projects, but that's the reality. <laughs> like we coexist on this planet. When we consider that, 
abortion, reproduction, parenting, etc. This whole range of like the essence of being human in many ways occurs in relationship. It doesn't occur in isolation. Humans are social creatures at a fundamental level. And so this idea of arguing about abortion as my child, my choice, my decision, what I'm going to do, that was never actually true because that isn't the way that people actually live our lives, especially not with regard to kind of these most fundamental things about being parented and parenting or not parenting. So, of course, I had to ask, what is the magical slogan that's going to lead us to victory? Anat actually had an answer. Someone you love will need an abortion someday. That's going to happen. It could be your sibling. It could be your coworker. It could be someone you knew in high school. It could be your neighbor. It could be you. But someone you love will need an abortion someday. And what will they do then? What that does is it activates the relationship. Instead of just putting the onus on the individual to tell a story about their own past abortion, which is also an integral part of the movement and an incredible thing that has occurred and, you know, vitally important. But what that does is it isolates people to have to come out rather than admit the fact that these decisions do happen in relationship, meaning somebody that you're talking about this with and processing this with and deciding this on behalf of. Someone you know will need an abortion. And if you don't fight for it now, you're going to regret it. It's a message that sets off alarm bells for our risk-averse ears. We need a slogan that will make people think about that risk because we've got a lot of work ahead of us. It's really hard to take things away from people. It is much, 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 much harder to get people to fight to establish a new right than it is to get them to fight to keep a thing that they have taken as given. It's, it's a completely different conversation. During our conversation with the knot, I was sort of perking up because I'm actually hearing this sort of language being used in public events, places where larger, more powerful audiences are hearing it and maybe being swayed by it. One recent example is abortion advocate and friend of the show, Renee Bracey Sherman's testimony in front of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. She repeated the World Health Organization's instructions for safely managing an abortion and ended saying, I share that to exercise my right to free speech because there are organizations and legislators who want to make what I just said a crime. Everyone loves someone who has abortions. For me, when Not was using this language, it reminded me of one of the first really impactful conversations I had about abortion with my family. The sort of framing they used really, really resonated with me. They said it like this, someone I love is going to need an abortion. Someone I love has had an abortion. Someone I love needs your support. And my beautiful mom told me this story when I was hearing about opponents to abortion in Sunday school, and it forever changed my trajectory as a human and a thinker and an activist. It's really chilling and beautiful for me to hear that my mom had the messaging just right. I think Anat would be proud. I know she would be. And 
I think it's so interesting to take on the project of reframing abortion as an individual act that the person does alone and should fight for alone and only they should know about to a community responsibility and an aspect of community care because that totally reframes whose responsibility it is. The far right has fought for so long to focus on the individual women and people who can get pregnant and their individual choices and responsibilities. And to step away from that and say goodbye to that and reframe the entire narrative as one of collective responsibility and community care is, I think, very invigorating. It's going to take a lot to shift the narrative and a long time to get all of the different parts of the movement on board with a new way to communicate why abortion access is so important. I know that this is all part of the fight and that we need to keep pushing forward, but I have to admit that I'm very, very tired. I'm just right there with you. All of the women in me are tired, as they say. (laughs) Believe me, I am too. I told Claudine as much, and she reminded me that in France, women have been fighting for rights throughout history, and it's never been fast or easy, but it's worth it. And she gave me some encouragement, and I'm going to keep that with me. I've heard her say courage before, so I'm, I'm hearing that as our call. The problem, I mean the problem, the reality, it's not a problem, it's a reality, the unbearable reality about women's rights, is that something which should be taking a year or two takes 50 to 100 years because patriarchy wants to keep its privilege. But now we have to use our tools to support you. We're there, we're ready. We would love to do it, which is to go down the street and we will follow you. That's what I mean. We will follow you. Next week on Ordinary Equality. We cannot win without, you know, bringing young people to the table, but bringing young people to the table in a way that makes the future that we are promising irresistible, that's filled with joy and jokes and fun and isn't just doom and everything feels so doom right now. I know listeners of our podcast enjoy this content. And if you want to keep hearing more of it and want to support both Jamia and I, please leave a review. Simple review, why you like the show, goes a really long way to spreading the word. And it's free. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production. This episode was produced by Carmen Borca-Carillo. Production assistance from Abby Delk. Our editor is Lindsay Cradwell. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Big thanks to our sponsor, Act Blue.